0: God, I thank you that no matter what, there's 10,000 reasons for us to sing your praise. Help us to see one of those reasons today in your word. Strengthen us to, to have our eyes on your text and to know what you have said and why you've said it, and help me to declare it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 12. Um, today we're going to be covering two very important statements of Jesus. One of which is probably, I want to say the most misunderstood, but I can't really say that, just probably one of the most misunderstood. Um, but also one of, uh, the other statement is probably one of the, the most misapplied uh, statements that Jesus makes. Uh, I'm going to give you a warning ahead of time. Today we're going to be talking about the doctrine of election. It comes up naturally in the text. Um, so as we've experienced before, it's a hot button topic. So I, I'm going to say in more uh, expounded terms what I'm going to say later, but we cannot ignore verses of the Bible to fit our presuppositions. And we also should not let our presuppositions determine the meaning of the Bible. I'm not going to say it exactly like that, but I'm going to encourage you all to listen with open ears, closed textbooks, um, because we want to be people of the book, not people who determine the meaning of the book. That would be what we call postmodernism, where the reader determines the meaning instead of the author determining the meaning. so considering how last week I actually interrupted Jesus' own argument, I figure it's best to start at the beginning of Jesus' argument and then work our way back through it. My focus is going to be verses 31 to 20, or I'm sorry, I keep saying that, 31 to 37. Believe it or not, every time I type these verses out, I said 31 to 27, and I'm now saying it with my voice. That is frustrating. So, <laughs> um, but but the the whole the whole situation started in verse 22. So I'm going to read 22 to 37. Um, but our focus again is going to be 31 to 37. So let's read. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so I want to I, I answer... Two questions. That's that's my goal, at least at least in part today. Question number one is what is the unpardonable sin, and question two is what are careless words. Um, I, I like I said, the first question is probably one of the most misinterpreted statements of Jesus, but the second question is probably one of the least applied, at least until uh, well, at least at least until a lot of the Puritans and a lot of the authors today that I read. Um, so, first of all, what is the unpardonable sin? Well, pause. Isn't God a forgiving God? Doesn't, doesn't God forgive all transgressions? Isn't that why Jesus came to die? He, he died. He covers people with their, with their blood, uh, and they are completely coated in his righteousness. So, so when they come before God, they're coated in his righteousness. How can, how can someone have something unpardonable in that? Is it maybe that there was like a leak in where the blood covered? Kind of like if you get a a bucket of ice water poured over you on a cold day, just saying ideas as today's a heat wave. But if you get a bucket of cold water poured on you, is there like a spot that maybe Jesus' blood misses? Is that how we take the unpardonable sin? Because that's how a lot of people actually read this. A lot of people read this section And they say, oh, you know what? Somebody can be a Christian all their lives. But then they commit the unpardonable sin. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And now they are beyond redemption. They are done, cut off from the people. They are thrown out, cast out like a transgressor of the law in the Old Testament. And they won't say it that way. But that's the way they take it. So therefore, I want to ask the question, what is the unpardonable sin? Because I don't want to commit it. Do you want to commit the unpardonable sin? Probably not. <laughs> when God says that's not forgivable, you don't want to do it. Just cross the board. So when we think about God and his uh, ability to forgive, the very first thing that probably comes to mind is from Exodus, where God straight up says that he is forgiving. And he He uses quite the explanation for how forgiving he is and something you and I should take a lot of comfort from. It's when God actually defines himself, tells, tells Moses specifically um, uh, who he is. He says in Exodus 34, Verses six to seven, uh, as he passes before Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. That judgmental part sticks with you. By no means clear the guilty. But, but the first thing that God describes himself as is a God slow to anger, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's own nature is such that he declares of himself that he is forgiving, that he he does forgive sins so much so that he even dies to save sinners. That's the gospel. Everybody knows the gospel, right? Well, I say everybody, but not really. But but you know what I mean? The, the good news that God would forgive sinners and he did so by sending his own son to die in their stead. So, how can a God who describes himself as forgiving declare that people um, transgress a sin so bad that he can't forgive it? Well, in context, when we when we stick to our verses in Matthew 12, in Matthew 12, not Psalm 42, uh, in Matthew 12, <laughs> uh, we... He, he says what it is, but he doesn't really tell us what it is. So we kind of have to have to understand from the situation what it is that Jesus is 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 warning these people. He's he's warning them that they are about to transgress it or they are transgressing it. So uh, we have to understand that this is also a culminating point. It's not just this one situation. The Pharisees have blasphemed him over and over and over again. They've stood against him, and frankly, they've shown that they are wholeheartedly against him. They have determined that, that they are Jesus's enemies, and by golly, they're going to be Jesus's enemies until the end. They're blaspheming him. Now they're even blaspheming his works. They're slandering the things he's doing. It's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's able to cast out demons. So we can really understand two things. But when I say understand, I use that term really loosely. Um, One, blasphemy against the son may be forgiven. That's in verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. So that's helpful, right? You can blaspheme Jesus all you want, you can be forgiven, yay, problem solved. But really, that's only when repentance accompanies the conviction. Couple examples, Peter was forgiven after he denied Christ three times. Three times, that's in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Paul, the apostle Paul, was originally Saul, the persecutor of the church. He killed Christ's people. He was there at Stephen's stoning. Yet yet he uh, he was saved. You can find that. You can find it in Acts 9, but you can also find it in 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 14, where Paul describes himself as a blasphemer and persecutor of Christ's people. And the reality is, too, that each and every one of us in this room has at one point blasphemed Christ. We've, We've looked at Jesus and we've told him, you're not enough. Whether it's in our sin, when Jesus calls us to holiness, and we decide, "Mm, actually, you know what, I like my sin more. That is a blasphemy against the Son, saying, "Mm, no, you are not good enough treasure. My sin is better treasure. So good news, those can be forgiven. Praise God. (laughs) Um, but, But then the other thing we can know is that blasphemy against the Spirit is not forgivable. Now, have you ever done that? Ooh. I, 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 I think, I'm going to say this at the end too, but I think that, frankly, knowing the situation, knowing that the Pharisees are completely wholeheartedly against Christ, they want to oppose Christ, they, they take every opportunity to oppose Christ, I think we can rest assured that they did not respond to the convictions that Jesus gave. I mean, how many times, how many times in, in these last 12 chapters have I said, hey, don't be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees are doing this. And I get that straight from the text where Jesus is calling out the Pharisees time and time again. Pharisees, this is who you are. Pharisees, this is what you're doing. Pharisees, you've misinterpreted this. Pharisees. It, the Pharisees are devoted. They are religious in their, their opposition to Christ. That is their religion they are so against god and what he's doing that they don't recognize god and what he's doing blasphemy against the spirit if i'm going to answer it in in confines of the text here seems to be that they are they 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 are devoted against christ they want to oppose him so bad that it is in, it is it is Encompassed everything that they've done. When Jesus graciously tells them that they're wrong, when Jesus kindly convicts them and gives them their sin, they are completely unrepentant. So if I'm going to define the unpardonable sin, it's the story of the Pharisees. To be so against Jesus, that they are the primary opponent of Jesus in all of the Gospels. And you think about it, I mean, I, a lot of people like to think, oh, Satan, Satan is Jesus's greatest opponent, right? Working behind the scenes, going against God. But the irony is that it's the Pharisees that are the most often mentioned opponents of Jesus, and so when I ask, are you a Pharisee? When I, when, I, when I tell you to consider that, are you a Pharisee? What you need to take that as is, am I, am I going against God? Am I unrepentant? When my sin is revealed, do I shake it off and go, mm, no, I don't need to quit that sin. I'm just, I'm just going to keep on going. I know what I'm doing. That, that would be the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, under the, the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, is bringing conviction to the Pharisees. And that's one of the Spirit's jobs, is to bring conviction. When we, in our conscience as Christians, feel that twinge of guilt, when somebody convicts us of our sin, and you know you have it, you start to feel like, ah, maybe, maybe this is my problem. May, maybe I do need to repent. The unpardonable sin is where you go, nope, and you erect the wall over your heart and you go, mm mm. -mm, I don't need to repent. They need to repent. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're saying Jesus is a sorcerer. He needs to be killed. He needs to repent or be killed. When they charge him with sorcery, when they say he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, that is what they're saying. So are you, are, are you a Pharisee? Do you fight against Christ with willful unbelief? Do you, do you decide that in everything you do, you're going to stand in opposition to God's goals? Are you, are you frequently resisting the rebukes that godly people are bringing you? Are you unaffected by Jesus's preaching? Are you reading the Bible and going, yeah, I'm a great person. Because if that's what you think, when you read the Bible, you, you are committing the unpardonable sin. And I pray that you will repent before it's actually unpardonable. in resisting the conviction Christ was giving them and furthering that resistance by ascribing Jesus' works to Satan, the Pharisees are placing themselves in mortal peril. The Pharisees had seen Jesus graciously deal with all types of people, people that you and I honestly probably don't want to associate with. Prostitutes, prostitutes, People who are, who are getting money by unjust gain, the tax collectors. They've seen, they've seen the blind receive sight, the deaf receive hearing, the mute have their tongues loosened, the hard-hearted are given rebuke, the weak are lifted up, the demonized have their demons removed, the afflicted have their afflictions removed, the Pharisees are seeing this. All these things should have amazed the Pharisees. They should have been in utter awe of Jesus. But their hearts are polluted with hatred. They continue in complete and utter willful unbelief and unrepentance. They're given irrefutable proof of Jesus's divinity, his power, his messiahship, All you got to do is open up Isaiah and go, yeah, Jesus fits the bill, man. Like, I mean, if if being the Messiah was a was like a tick box, you know, checklist. Right. Then uh, then Jesus ticks them all. And yet the Pharisees reject him. They persistently reject him. And because of these careless words of their hatred, they are condemned and justly and rightly so. If you look in the bulletin, if you open it up. The sermon summary for today is Jesus uses the careless words of the Pharisees to show them their condemnation is just. Do you think they repent? Do you think the Pharisees at large repent? No. Actually, they're the ones that get Jesus killed. They're the ones that realize they can't run Jesus out of town. They can't run Jesus out of power. They can't run Jesus out of authority. And so therefore, they can run him out of his life. And they think that they're doing God's will. Those who reject Christ persistently and are truly unrepentant are completely responsible for their sin. The old word is culpability. We don't use that word anymore. But we can understand when someone's culpable. Actually, I just had this conversation with my daughter the other day. There was a bicyclist on the side of the road. And the bicyclist was kind of coming in the lane a little bit. This is on 101. And so, therefore, everyone next to the bicyclist slows down and goes very carefully around them. And, uh, and, and my, uh, I, my daughter goes, why? Why are you doing that, Daddy? Why, why did you slow down? I was like, well, I don't want to hit the bicyclist. And and she's like, oh, because then he'd die? And I was like, right, right, he'd die and I'd actually go to jail. We call that vehicular vehicular manslaughter. If I'm not being careful, and that person is predominantly in the bike lane, and I hit them. Or if even there's a bike lane there in Oregon, it's, they could be in the middle of the road and make a claim like, oh, they're in the bike lane. Anyway, that's my problem with Oregonians. So, <laughs> so um, but, but if I hit him and kill him, I get charged with vehicular manslaughter. Or if I hit him, I get charged with negligence. I am culpable. I am responsible for driving carefully in a car not hitting bicyclists. We all understand culpability, even if we disagree with the laws surrounding them. But we all understand culpability. We all understand responsibility. So this is where the question of election comes in. How can somebody be responsible for their sin if God's responsible for saving them? that's essentially what election is, right? God chooses those whom he's going to save. Well, then what about the rest of them? What about the rest of the lot? Are they, since they're non-elect, how can they, how can they be, how how can they be responsible for it? Well, it's true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, Romans 3.10b-11. to So, Everybody across the board, justly condemned. Right? We should all be condemned. Each and every person deserves condemnation, deserves to be punished, uh, cannot earn enough righteousness before a perfect God. By the way, if you ever read Leviticus, you will never never measure up to that standard. In fact, I would recommend reading Leviticus. If you have not read Leviticus, read it and realize that you will never measure up to the standard. There are not enough bulls to be sacrificed to atone for your sin year by year. Wasn't even the point of the law. Anyway, um, but it's also true that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. And this is where it gets, this is where the hot button is. So close your textbooks God has mercy on whom He has mercy," Romans 9:15. You can confer also where that quote is from with Exodus 33:19, where God says that uh, in, in reference to Pharaoh, he actually says, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will harden whom I harden." And he takes credit for hardening Pharaoh. We need to affirm that the Bible does not contain lies. We have to affirm that the Bible does not contain lies when we read Ephesians 1.5, that God predestined or preordained or preordered Christians for adoption, or Ephesians 1.11, where Christians have been predestined according to the purpose of him, his purpose, God's purpose, not the purpose of the one that wants salvation. We also know that Jesus was not lying when he said in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I got 23 of these verses, man. I'm going to stop there. I got 23. <laughs> I am not going to bombard you with them. But but the reality is that since we're all condemned and since God elects some to salvation, we can, we can be filled with joy that, that God would save even me. I say that all the time. If I were God, I wouldn't save me. So so why why can Jesus in our text today look at the Pharisees and 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 essentially say you are committing the unpardonable sin How can those two things be smushed together? How can they both be true? How can it's it's like taking oil and water and saying I'm going to mix them? But that's how it is in our minds. It's only it's only in conference, or, I'm sorry, in conflict when in our own minds we determine that we judge truth. Do you judge truth or does God judge truth? All the verses on election must be affirmed and also all the verses on responsibility must be affirmed. Even the one where God says he hardens those who are not elect, which, by the way, is in Romans eleven seven. when God, when Paul writes, what then Israel failed to failed to obtain what it was seeking, which is righteousness, according to the law, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Without God's powerful, kind hand in regenerating dead sinners, all would remain justly condemned as self-serving, self-righteous sinners. Every last one of us would be justly condemned. I like how Paul puts it in Ephesians. Actually, Ephesians 2, 1 through 11 is one of my favorite sections of scripture, Scripture. But Paul says it this way. And you, you Christians... And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, which is condemnation, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, meaning you you and your core were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Did you merit it? Did you choose it? Did you jump on it? Did you, were, were you the one that was floating on the side of the boat and you grabbed onto the ladder and decided you were going to pull yourself up? No, you were dead. Dead in your sins and trespasses. But here is Jesus proclaiming life and actually rebuking corpses. He's looking at the Pharisees in everything that they are. They're dead and he is still giving them the mercy, the mercy of telling them that they're sinners. How many of you have preached the gospel to someone and they go, yeah, that's not for me. That is a corpse. That is the walking dead and they need the work of God to bring them to salvation. And you pray and you plead, and maybe even that's your family member, man. That's been my family. I pray and plead, God, please bring them to salvation. Why do I pray that? Why do I pray that? Because I know that it takes the work of God to bring a sinner to repentance. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a Christian. So stop scanning your Bible for verses. Stop looking at screens on your phones trying to prove me wrong. Just, just stop. Stop and recognize that, that, that that's a wonderful, beautiful truth that God would bring to salvation any of us. Any of us. Because I wouldn't. You wouldn't. You might, in in your mercy, look at somebody and go, "Mm, you know, maybe I would save them. They're a really good person. But guess what? Frankly, it would be too much trouble for you. (laughs) It just would be. So the reason that I'm I've pulled so far away from even our text this time is because this has been pitted against God's election almost every single time I've heard it. But Dude, in the New Testament alone, I've, well, I had thrown at me 23 verses or 20, 22 verses about how this does not coincide with the doctrine of election, the teaching of election. But it does. Let's read the rest of the passage. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That image is intrinsically linked with the unpardonable sin. So what are these careless words, right? What's interesting to me about verse 33 is the use of the word create. Uh, it, it's translated make in the ESV. It's the, it's the Greek word "poema." You don't ever need to know that. I just, I say Greek words to sound smart, sorry. Uh, so so when, when, the, when Jesus says either make the tree good that's the same word we use for God when he created the world. But but it's not really ever used that way. I think it's I think it's fascinating. It is in Ephesians 2:11 it's used in that way that God makes us. Anyway, but but it, it's, it's only used, the way, used in terms of God's creation a handful of times. So let's, let's think about the image for a second. Let's say you plant several fruit trees. right? Uh, we, we can call them good works. But you plant several fruit trees. All of them are in good soil. You water and you fertilize them as necessary. You do everything that you're supposed to do. But, uh, but as it turns out, there's actually a disease in the midst of those trees. So as they grow, they wither. Branches start to get rotten, they start to fall apart, and so therefore you prune them off. But frankly, this disease has hit the very core, the very trunk of the tree, and it is permeating everything. This tree will never yield good fruit because frankly, it's not a good tree. It's rotten inside, rotten in the core. That's the image Jesus is actually giving here. Not about, hey, you need to go make your tree good. It's, if he said that, he would, have, he would have said, so now Pharisees go, do likewise, make good trees. Instead, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? They are not able. They are unable to. They are continuing to do evil works because, frankly, that disease has struck every tree that they plant. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen, if you are saved, if, if God is working in you, if you treasure Christ in your heart, if you see him as the pearl of great price, if you see him as the treasure hidden in the field, if you have decided that everything you have is worth selling because, frankly, Jesus is better then out of the abundance of that treasure, your mouth will speak. You will praise God. You will repent of your sin. Because frankly, that's kind of, that's the image. That's the image that all your sin is worth casting out because Jesus is a greater treasure than whatever garbage your sin is. C.S. Lewis had a wonderful metaphor about that where he said that we are all, all like little children content eating mud pies when we have a holiday at sea offered to us. That is what we are like, friends. But it doesn't have to be. Look to Jesus. I've said it so many times. Look to Jesus. Something inside the Pharisees is rotten. They're being eaten away from their own sin and self-righteousness. They are fully culpable, fully responsible for their lack of repentance. But then going back to Election, wait, how can they be responsible? How, how, can, how can they be responsible for their sin? Right? If God's required to regenerate them, then that's not fair. That's not fair for God to call them, call them responsible for their sin. Let me read to you Paul's argument for that. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? The condemnation of the Pharisees is one thing. But how wonderful must it have been for all these people around them who have been crushed by the by the legal restraints that the Pharisees have continued to just pour on them. All these people see Jesus standing up to these self-righteous Pharisees and they look to him and they say, wow, wow, he's stumping the Pharisees. He's 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 healing the blind. He's taking away the afflicted and the the afflictions and the demons. And he's doing all these wonderful things. The Pharisees continue in rebellion against Christ, but then everyone else is standing there in awe of Jesus. How merciful he is. He's bearing with much patience these vessels prepared for wrath so that those who, who appreciate and glory in Jesus's mercy would come to him and fall at his feet and love him and adore him and worship him. The good news, the gospel of Jesus hardens the hearts of the Pharisees, but it softens the heart and regenerates those who, whom, whom see this as wonderful. There's people sitting around. Why are the Pharisees so hard on Jesus? Don't, don't they see his kindness? Don't they see how many people he's taking care of? Don't they see how merciful he is? They see his glorious riches of mercy while the Pharisees are proving, proving that Christ is just to shower on them his wrath. The person, or the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Those who saw Jesus' wonderful works of mercy brought forth Words, actions of praise of and acclamation, but those who resisted that mercy spewed forth blasphemous, ruinous words, like saying that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. Verses thirty-six and thirty-seven actually bring out our application, which is to be very careful how you speak about God. Very careful. In verses 36 to 37, Jesus says this I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Think about it. If somebody in their heart treasures Christ, loves Christ, they would not accuse Christ, they would not accuse God of doing things by the power of demons. They are being careless with their words. Remember back in Matthew 7, 23, when Jesus tells people who have done mighty deeds in Jesus's name, depart from me, I never knew you. As a friend of mine called it, the scariest verse in all the Bible. Their defenses were worthless. Why? Because their words throughout their lives did not acknowledge God rightly. They may have said they served God. They, may have, they, they did incredible things for God. But God, knowing the treasure of their hearts and the words that they were spewing, and even the words that they didn't say, but they were holding in the back of their minds, those words bore a different witness than that of someone who knew Christ. So, application. Two applications. Application number one is to question, how do you carelessly speak of God? Do you carelessly speak of God? Yeah, you do. It's just, we'll just, Jesus makes it clear that every person gives careless words, right? So you do, you do speak carelessly about God. I'm, I'm telling you. So how do you carelessly do it? In the heat of the moment, drawing out truths in the back of your mind about who God is, and you, you, you speak out of whatever treasure you have. Is the treasure in your heart good or bad? Is it bound to scripture or is it bound to presuppositions or is it bound to to maybe something a pastor said at one point? You're like, I like that. And then you file that away in the Rolodex. Nobody uses Rolodex. You put that in the file folder of OneDrive uh, (laughs) of biblical truths to never forget. Now, this is not a sermon on predestination, uh, but the question arose, right? You're gonna, if we're going to pit the unpardonable sin against God's election, it's only natural here. Um, but but I, I, I want you to watch your careless words. And I mean it. Watch your careless words. Watch what comes out of your mouth. No one who calls themselves a Christian wants to be seen as misrepresenting God. But it is a sheer misrepresentation to ignore or blot out even the few verses I mentioned. That's actually how the Pharisees were able to miss who Christ was. They ignored parts, some very important parts of the Old Testament. So may we be people, um, may we not be people who do the same and carelessly blaspheme God. Instead, we need to be people of the book, not people who determine the meaning of the book. And a final note about the unpardonable sin. Um, I, I, have said it before, but I, I became a Christian in a church that was really judgmental and, uh, and I questioned all the time. In fact, other people questioned me, are you sure you're not committing the unpardonable sin? So therefore this section strikes terror in me that it probably doesn't in other people. But to question, have we blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am I therefore unsavable? That's a good question. But remember to commit the unpardonable sin is to lack repentance, to not be convicted when God's word is brought before you. So uh, if you are concerned that you've committed it, chances are you haven't. Good news. (laughs) Um, If you you truly are afraid that that, that you've committed it, if you've consistently and wholeheartedly resisted God... And what God says of himself, attributing his works to the works of the devil, I'd frankly wonder why you're even here today. So therefore, regardless, turn in repentance to the God who does forgive, who sent his one and only son to die to secure that forgiveness for you. If you want that, if you want Jesus to be your treasure, growing in wisdom and knowledge in whom the treasure is found, Colossians 2, uh, if you want to grow in the knowledge of God and his ways, then I don't think you're beyond forgiveness. I don't think you've committed the unpardonable sin. I really don't. I don't think anyone here has. But it will, time will tell. Time will tell as you spend time around others, it, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt because you and I are always on a path of sanctification. That was Bible study today. Now, now it's not Carl stealing my material. It's, it's Casey. Anyway, so, <laughs> but, at least today. But, but I don't think any of you have. So turn to Christ. Look to him. Rest in him. Find your, find your growth in him. Read his word. Know that this book is correct. And that this book is wrong. I went long today. Let's pray. Father, I pray for for those who commit the unpardonable sin, for those who do reject you and will never turn to you, Those, those whom you do not rescue. I pray for them. I pray for their repentance, knowing that you have in your heart and in your mind every one of us who's going to turn to you. This is not easy for us to understand, but who am I? To answer back to you. You are the molder of the clay. You are the one who sets up one for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. May we rest in you, not the words of man, not philosophical arguments, not, 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 not any logical conclusion that we can form, but may we rest in the fact that what you have said is true, that, that every person is responsible for their sin. And that any person can come to you for salvation. Because if we want to come to you, it's you working in us. May we come to you, resting in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. I have been called graceless. I have been called terrible. I've been called mean. I've been called a lot of names. But let me tell you that, honestly, it doesn't rely on my grace or my thoughts or anything. It relies on him who is gracious. Him who is worthy of all our praise and adoration. If you want to love Jesus, know that that is God working in you, rescuing you, providing you the relief that your soul most needs. Rest in him, and you will avoid committing the unpardonable sin. You'll still have careless words, but you'll avoid the unpardonable sin. Go in peace, saints.